it was a totally different way of running a marketing operation than Aetna had ever seen. At first, there was a lot of skepticism, but as we started getting results and eventually doubled the contribution to sales from marketing from the year before, it got me credibility, it got that operation credibility, we we got double the budget for the following year, we expanded it, it kept expanding, and eventually we took the concept of agile marketing into four different areas of Aetna. It's time! Work! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast, coming to you on the first and third Mondays of every month. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to someone who has been repeatedly recognized by Forbes as one of the most influential CMOs in the world. He is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School and the former CMO of Aetna, which is a Fortune 50 company. My guest today is David Edelman. David is one of the biggest names in the marketing world. He has over 1.2 million followers on LinkedIn. He is also an executive advisor that consults with companies of all sizes that are looking to optimize their digital and marketing transformation. I could not think of a better person to chat about marketing strategy with. In our conversation, we discussed David's personal background, what got him interested in marketing, his experience as the CMO of Aetna, and specific marketing strategies for our listeners. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose FIRST as your primary financing source and experience the FIRST difference today. Without further ado, here's David. David, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Patrick. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I'm hoping to go through a few different categories. I'd like to go through your personal background. I'm really interested as to why you got so interested in marketing. I want to hear about your time at Aetna. And then I, I think I'm also think it'd be great to um, go through some specific actionable marketing strategies for uh, the audience of insurance professionals out there. So how, how does that sound as an agenda? That sounds terrific. Sure. Let's dive in. Cool. To start off, where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York but not the area that's pretty hip these days, right in the middle of Brooklyn, an area called Midwood um, that still hasn't completely gotten gentrified yet. Okay, cool. I know, I know you were really big into music. You've, it sounds like you've been into music for most of your life. Did you start playing instruments early on or did that come later? 
I actually started very early on in elementary school. They had a program to teach. Uh, I was in a public school. They had a program to teach kids musical instruments. I started on clarinet. Uh, that was pretty popular and actually quite portable for a boy to walk around carrying the case. Um, but then once I got into high school, clarinet wasn't quite as cool as saxophone. Oh, nice. Uh, so I switched over to tenor saxophone, which actually wasn't that hard, took lessons and got very deeply involved. Uh, I ended up actually music directing, writing the arrangements, conducting the band and playing saxophone for our school shows, which were sing, which I guess now is a broader, well-known thing, a competition among the high schools uh, where you write your own musical and then you compete. Uh, so I was very active. Um, we actually made it to uh, inter-school competition uh, both my years, so uh, my junior and senior years, which was great. Wow. Did that yeah. come from your parents? Did your parents play instruments as well? Nothing at all. No, my father, my mother was a public school secretary. My father was an accountant. No, they didn't. It was just me uh, pursuing. Interesting, my sister became a dance choreographer. She's not doing okay. that full time, um, but uh, she got into it in her own angle. Uh, but no, not for my parents, just my own passion, just always listening to music. Um, my parents exposed me to rock and roll records, though, pretty early. Uh, I do remember actually sitting around a little record player, listening to the soundtrack from Hair when I was a kid. And, you know, the soundtrack from Hair for a kid actually has a lot of language in it that's pretty racy. Not sure my parents realized <laughs> what we were listening to, um, but I was very into it all uh, mm -hmm. and just have built on that over the years. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that with watching the movie Austin Powers growing up as a oh, kid. Oh, of I course. Think. Oh, my kids. <laughs> My kids were watching Austin Powers at uh -huh. ridiculously young ages. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I watch it now and I'm like, I, 99% of the jokes went over my head when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's really, that's really interesting. So to, to this day, have you transitioned to playing any other instruments or um, are you associated with music from an organizational level where you're part of any groups or anything like that? Yeah, so I've stuck with tenor saxophone and I conducted bands and did music arrangement all the way through college. And then when I was in business school, have to admit, once I uh, graduated from business school, started traveling a lot when I was doing consulting, having kids, I put it down, didn't do that much with it. But actually, about 10 years ago, picked it up again, uh, started taking lessons at a music school nearby and they have ensembles. And so I've been playing uh, with a couple of different ensembles, mostly rhythm and blues covers, and it's just a blast. Um, right now, I'm actually working on the lead saxophone line on Born to Run, Clarence Clemens, just incredible. Yeah. Solo, it's a real challenge, but it's one that I'm just dying to master. So I've been uh, working on that pretty hard. Very cool. So I think that's actually a, a great transition point to your time at Harvard. And I know you spent, I mean, really three different trips to Harvard, whether it's undergrad, <laughs> business school, now lecturer. True. How did you get into Harvard? Because like, from me looking at it, it's like maybe the most prestigious school in the country. What does it take to get into Harvard and how, did, how was your experience? Well, who knows what it takes these days, um, because this was many years ago when I got in. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I, I think, you know, a combination of doing really well in school and I had a lot of extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, my activity in music was a, a big part of it. I actually sent in with my application a recording of me playing Ornithology by Charlie Parker mm-hmm. uh, and saying that, you know, I can play saxophone and be in the jazz band at Harvard and um, just showing my musical side as well. Um, and then I did some other extracurricular activities, including I was one of the editors of the high school newspaper and just, you know, really did well in school. So it was a combination of uh, all of the above that mm-hmm. got me in uh, undergraduate. It was a life changing experience. Uh, totally. I mean, coming out of Brooklyn, learning a lot about the world, the rest of the country. I barely knew geography um, you know, at all. It wasn't something we had been taught. Um, you know, like, where was Chicago? I didn't even know. Uh, you know, met kids from Chicago. It wasn't exactly, knew it was a big city. Didn't exactly know where it was. Uh, so it was just life-changing. Uh, so I was just really indebted to, to getting in there. And then, yeah, I've, I got in again for business school. I spent a couple of years uh, in uh, starting as a consultant to Booz Allen Hamilton in New York after uh, my undergraduate years. Um, did really well and uh, applied to business school and yeah, got in uh, to HBS, another tremendous experience. Uh, and there really got hooked on marketing. So that's where it started because my next question was, sorry to interrupt, but that's where my next question was going to be. What sparked your interest in marketing and what time did it happen? Yeah, so I got interested in marketing in business school uh, in my first year business school. Everybody at Harvard must take introduction to marketing, which actually is what I am teaching now as well. (laughs) Uh, So I took it with one of the legendary professors at the business school, Stephen Grazer. Uh, He is just recently retired after a long career. Uh, And I just love the fact that marketing combined both the right brain and the left brain. It had a lot of creativity. Uh, And frankly, music, there's a lot of parallels to music, by the way. Um, There's the math side as well as a lot of, you know, analysis, trying to understand market sizing, cost of acquisition, many different kinds of pricing and all of that. But there's creativity and there's understanding human emotion and connecting with that emotion, understanding how brands mean something to people. And if they don't, well, then you don't have much of a brand. Um, So it really connected with me in terms of the way I thought from both sides of the brain. It also wasn't about just manipulating numbers like finance, I found was a lot of just chasing money and manipulating. And it wasn't about cost cutting. Uh, It was about growth. It was about building things. It was about connecting to people. Uh, And that was really alluring. And um, Harvard Business School, you do cases. So you're, you're learning about companies where there's a protagonist who faces a situation with tough questions. And I just found those kinds of questions to be incredibly interesting and the kinds of questions I would want to deal with. I mean, everything ranging from how do you, I remember my very first case was 
field crest blankets and linens where they were in higher end department stores but the lower end chains at the time Kmart Target was Walmart were starting to grow and the question was should they sell through those uh, retailers and how do you think about the effect of on the brand pricing should they create a new line all of that which you know is really interesting it gets into the heart of strategy as well as marketing uh, and so I found those kinds of questions very alluring. Okay. So your interest really was sparked while you're at Harvard Business School. Can you walk yeah. me through your career leading up to becoming the CMO of Aetna? Yeah, sure. So after I graduated from business school, I had loved my experience in consulting at Booz Allen Hamilton, but... I really wanted to be in Boston, actually, and my fiance at the time, um, who was from Maine, uh, really didn't want to live in New York, and I didn't want to think about raising a family, and New York's kind of tough for that. Uh, Boston was really appealing. Booze didn't have an office in Boston. Uh, I... So I also wanted a place where they would let me focus a bit more in marketing and where my interests were. And so I landed a consultant slot at the Boston Consulting Group, uh, where I stayed for 13 years. And very early on at BCG, within the first three years, I had done three pretty major projects where... It was about the intersection of marketing with new capabilities and in information technology. And this was before the internet, guys. So, you know, this was in the late 80s uh, where databases were just becoming available. And you can use those databases to think about segmentation, new forms of customer service, use them for direct marketing, which at the time was really direct mail and telemarketing. And I started to do more research into the technologies involved and where it was going, and eventually uh, came up with the concept that we called Segment of One Marketing. Uh, I cannot take credit for the name. That was a, a senior partner who's long gone um, who came up with that, but it was my baby. Uh, I wrote articles on it. I did speeches on it and got clients interested in work and helped them think about how to take advantage of these new marketing capabilities. Um, one example was Time Magazine Group had a new capability to do selective binding, the, uh, the ability to put different pages in different people's magazines for not much incremental variable cost. So that what unlocked a whole new capability for advertising that can be targeted to an individual. They also added inkjet capabilities where they could personalize things like have a, an application for something already in the magazine, already printed for you. So all you had to do was tear it out and send it. And so we worked with them on how to package that offering for advertisers, think about their own database capabilities that they'd have to build. And then more and more of those kinds of projects started popping up until the big breakthrough, which was around 90, 91, was the internet, of course. Uh, and I did a project for AT&T. Before AT&T was what it was now, it was just a long distance company then, uh, after the Bell spinoff. And they asked us, what's the internet going to do to our business? 
And the answer was, it isn't pretty. Uh, the internet was going to take all of the very profitable fax traffic that they had, especially overseas fax traffic to Asia, and just wipe it out, because uh, that can all go through email. Uh, and as the internet became the way communications happened, and you can get into some technology geeky things about packet switching versus circuit switching, um, it would really destroy the profit halo that AT&T had. Um, so that led them to diversify. They went into cable TV. They went into cellular. They eventually transformed the whole company. They ended up getting bought by Southwest Bell and moved to Dallas and became the AT&T we know now. Uh, but that whole start with the Internet you know, made me realize there was huge change coming. Uh, and so I helped BCG build the e-commerce practice that still exists today there. I stayed until 99 at BCG. Then I joined a team that was building a new digital agency, which became Digitas. I uh, wanted to get my hands dirtier, really get to the rock face of what it takes to build websites, launch campaigns, understand digital media in a much more detailed, quantitative sense. Um, that was an amazing run at Digitas because we went way up at the beginning. 9-11 happened. That was really tough. We had to lay off a third of our people. And then we grew again and eventually got bought by Publicis, uh, the big ad agency holding company. Uh, at that point, figured it was time to move on uh, and had an opportunity to build a digital marketing strategy practice for McKinsey. Uh, and so jumped over there, having been at BCG, now at McKinsey, uh, and was there for eight years, building that practice, uh, first in North America and then increasingly internationally. Uh, and then eventually uh, got tired of traveling all over the place, frankly, and had an opportunity to go client side to uh, join Aetna and transform it into something that was going to be much more consumer-centered, more digital, more analytic, and have more of a focus on customer experience, uh, which was just an amazing opportunity that I had. So you became the CMO of Aetna. How did you approach your strategy and responsibilities with such a big role? I had to be very careful because this was a company that was you know, 160 years old. Uh, it had, I was the first chief marketing officer they had. Marketing had been a much more junior function, under sales, broken up by the divisions. So with me coming in, we centralized marketing. The goal that Mark Bertolini, the CEO at the time, had was to really elevate marketing to be one of, not the only, of course, but one of the strategic drivers in the company. But I had to get credibility, had to help people really understand what the art of the possible really was. They, they didn't have marketing like that before. They didn't understand what could be done. Uh, and so very quickly, I needed to get a demonstration project that could show, get wins on the board, that could show what's possible. And I joined just as open enrollment for Medicare was getting started. And Medicare is a very competitive business. Medicare Advantage is where private insurers offer Medicare to seniors and take on the risk of managing those senior accounts. They take on the risk from a cost perspective, but they also get compensated for quality scores 
by the government as well. So it's got both the cost and the health impact side, but it's very competitive. And I looked at the marketing plans that were getting set and I said, they were all set and lined up and this was our plan. I said, how do we know this is gonna work? Medicare changes every year. We're entering new markets, there's new competitors. And so I reorganized the whole thing into an agile marketing operation where we got everybody involved in touching marketing at that time, physically together in a war room, including our agencies, where we were going to constantly test and learn, test and learn, test and learn in two week cycles. Get new things out there, try them, see if things are working, double down the money. If things are not, try new things, move those budgets around for search. We were doing direct response TV. Uh, we were putting stuff up in social. Even the which telemarketers who were working for us were doing well and were hot, we'd feed them more. We had stand-ups every single day at 11 o'clock, and it was a totally different way of running a marketing operation than Aetna had ever seen. At first, there was a lot of skepticism, but as we started getting results and eventually doubled the contribution to sales from marketing from the year before, it got me credibility, it got that operation credibility, we, we got double the budget for the following year, we expanded it, it kept expanding, and eventually we took the concept of agile marketing into four different areas of Aetna, uh, including marketing to get people to do healthier things for themselves. Uh, if we can get you to do healthier things, First of all, you're healthier. Um, you, as a member, would save money and Aetna would save money. Mm -hmm. So if you're over 50 and we get you to get your colonoscopy, that's a good thing. Get your flu shot, stay on your meds, get your levels checked if you're a diabetic. All of those things were win-win-wins if we can get people to do them. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know how to get people to do them. So we had to try things. So it was constant test and learn, test and learn, test and learn. Uh, and we called that our behavior change pods. And those got scaled too. And now there's at least six or seven pod operations across Aetna and now CVS who bought Aetna as well. That is fascinating. So that agile marketing, would you consider that almost like that research and development or trial and error group that's kind of cohesive across the company or with like the major stakeholders that are somehow involved in marketing is is that what how you describe that agile marketing strategy yeah I, I think the concept is you're trying to get a much more dynamic way of putting things in market seeing how they work and then adjusting budgets mm -hmm. or adjusting content accordingly so you got to constantly be innovating, trying new content, new ways of connecting with people, looking at things from a bit more of a deliberate, uh, a deliberate testing way, more segmented, more personalized. And then I'm, I'm sorry about the background noise oh, okay. there. No worries. Um, but uh, you're constantly trying to put new things in market. So you need the technology to be able to personalize, to run a lot of different AB and, and, and increasingly multivariate tests, be able to get that data back, read that data, 
So you need marketing, you need analytics, you're going to need operations to get the stuff out the door. You may need to be linked to sales who are going to be getting different kinds of leads than they had before. You want your media agency involved. So there's a whole range of people who all have to be a part of that and work together. And from an insurance perspective, it affects brokers too, because this could mean differences in what was the nature of the offer that hit somebody when they're coming in as an inbound lead. You want the brokers to know what's been going out into market. You can also move the budget when things are hot, not. So if some brokers are closing leads faster, you're going to put more budget into those geographies. In other areas, if they're not, you got to try new content. So you constantly have to move things around. Well, that is extremely impressive in terms of the strategy and doubling down on what's working and eliminating what's not working. I also read that you repositioned Aetna's entire brand. Can you talk about that repositioning and why you did it and and the effect that you saw it at now? Yeah, sure. So when I came in, Mark Bertolini, the CEO, brought me in um, because he realized that just competing as an insurer is a commodity business. Uh, It's all just about your pricing in terms of your premiums. In the case of health insurance, it's about which network you have, which hospitals and docs you have and how much of a discount you can charge off of that. Uh, It's also just, it is certainly about managing actuarial risk, but it's not anything that's necessarily going to build customer relationships that's going to get people to change the way they act so that the cost structure of healthcare can improve. And so we had to build trust with customers. We wanted to show that we cared about health outcomes and if we could move health behaviors and get people to act in a healthier way everybody would win and we would be seen as a health partner and that was the core to his belief when i came in and that's what actually got my heart racing in terms of joining he said look marketing's going to save healthcare and that's not entirely true But the reality is, if we could get people to do healthier actions, it would make a huge difference in the economics of healthcare and make Mm -hmm. people healthier along the way. Mm -hmm. That was really inspiring. Yeah. And so we changed the brand image of Aetna from just being there for you to being much more of a health partner. And our slogan was, you don't join us, we join you. So it's about joining the member Uh and helping them achieve their health goals. Was that the tagline? Yes. Okay, cool. That was the tagline. You don't join us, we join you. And that was so motivating for the employees, for everybody in the company to say, we are out there to help our members. And we're going to highlight stories and give awards for people on the front lines who are helping members, whether it's somebody in a call center who's helping somebody understand the economics of a claim that they have, to also helping people find care, because we're out there to do that, help you get care. Uh, So all of those kind of, and we had nurses on the front lines who would actually go into people's homes to help them. And all of that is about helping people be healthier. 
And so that was a dramatic change in the brand. It also led to a push to improve customer experience, to actually measure customer experience. And eventually, when Karen Lynch became president of Aetna, compensate executives based on customer experience, 20% of bonuses moving towards customer experience metrics. So it was a huge pivot. And that is certainly continuing now that Aetna is part of CVS. I can see how that would be inspiring both internally and externally. You mentioned that sales... um, we're increasing pretty dramatically year over year based on your marketing efforts. Was that the primary way that you track success or was there another way that you tracked ROI based on uh, your marketing efforts? Yeah, there's different parts to the business in healthcare. I mean, one is sales, especially in Medicare, which is a direct to consumer business. So yes, um, sales and sales growth was absolutely critical. Um, In some cases, we also sold ancillary products to expand an existing relationship. So selling in dental, selling in vision um, to expand a relationship. But then also, as I mentioned earlier, we did health actions, more health behavior marketing. And so that's different. That's not sales. That's getting people to do actions that will either lower their costs and therefore lower our costs or improve quality so that we get better recognition in quality scores from the government for our government-funded programs. And that drives something called STARS ratings, where the government gives your plan a certain number of stars going up to five stars and also compensates you more for an increasing number of stars. Plus, you can market the fact that you're a five-star plan if you've got you know, that many stars. And when I left Aetna, we had the most, the largest geographical footprint of four plus star Medicare programs in the country. Uh, and a lot of that having to do with a big push on quality, customer experience, and a lot of different dimensions. And marketing certainly was a key part of that as well. That's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing your experience because I think there's so few people that have been at that top level CMO job for a Fortune 50 company. So um, just really interesting to hear your thoughts on um, your strategy and your focus there. And I'd love to transition to some specific marketing strategy and techniques that you teach now as a Harvard Business School lecturer. And to start off super generally, I think I wanted to ask this question because I wanted to see if you had a unique answer to this, but do you have a way that you define the word marketing? Marketing is about getting connected with a customer base to drive behavior change and affinity for your product. That's what it is. Um, and that if that behavior change doesn't necessarily drive an affinity for the product, you're probably spending a lot of money on promotions that isn't going to last very long. So it's both. Mm. It's to drive behavior change and affinity for the product. I really like that definition. Um, most insurance businesses that I run into that are, you know, small to mid-sized businesses, 
it's very evident that they are not focusing on marketing. And if they're, let's just say there's an insurance agency out there that hasn't been focused on it, but wants to heavily invest in their marketing department, is there a place that you think that they should start? Well, if you're an agency, so much of the way you compete is local. Um, you probably have some combination of an online presence, but you're also relying a lot on referrals. Uh, you're relying on people finding you physically, talking to you over the phone, building your network of relationships from everything from salespeople to brokers and all of that um, across the board. I think one of the main things that you have to do is make it clear your easy to do business with. And how does that really manifest itself? You want to be easy to do business with from all the people who refer business to you, all of the parties who you interact with, and certainly from customers. Um, so you need to have some core positioning usually around that. I think the other thing that for a lot of agencies is insurance is complicated. It can get very complicated and you've got to make it simple. Um, you have to help people find the simplicity. Um, and so you've got to think about the way you share content, the way you show documents, the way you talk to people to bring out simplicity and help people understand. You don't want to make it so simple that people are missing stuff, mm -hmm. but you want to make it so people understand what you're selling them and they can trust you because you're trying to educate them as well. So before you even go too far, Mark, you have to think about that. How are you going to manifest being easy to do business with and making it simple? Because those are going to be major differentiations mm -hmm. uh, that you're going to have. Because it's not going to be just competing on cost. It's it maybe access to certain kinds of specialized products that you have. But the reason that matters is because it makes it easier to do business. And it's simpler for you to find things that people might need specifically. So ease and simplicity. Uh, should really be a big part of the way you market yourself. And so then you've got to think about how does that flow into the way you present yourself on your website, uh, all of the ways that your, your brochures, everything out there. Then you can spend on things like buying search, you know, search engine marketing. So you're paying for terms that will drive people to your site and you can pay for that by locking in a certain kind of geography, maybe certain other terms that relate to specialties that you have. But don't drive traffic to a website that's boring, that just simply looks like everybody else's, that's not distinguished in any way. You really want to drive traffic to something that people go in and say, I think I can do business with this. This is simple. This is not glitzy, easy. Uh, I think that's a, a very important pillar to just have at your core. That's outstanding advice because the insurance industry is riddled with complexity. And I myself, in our prospecting efforts for Evolve MGA, which is a cyber insurance business, we work with retail insurance brokers. I've looked at thousands of agencies' websites and they're so similar. They're generally outdated and... Um, it's, 
it's very hard to figure out exactly what people are focused on, what they do best, and the true benefits that they're bringing to the business at the end of the day. If we're talking about a commercial PNC agency. So I, I think that's an excellent place for agencies to start. Now, David, I know that you are, um, like we've been discussing, a Harvard Business School lecturer, and you teach Marketing 101. Is there any major takeaways that you want your students to walk out of that class with um, or any major core components of that class that you want to make sure are hammered home to those students once they, once they um, finish your class? It's very similar to what we've been talking about. The core thing I want students to take away is in any business, what is your brand about? Who really are you? How are you differentiated? What would distinguish the experience that a customer has working with you or your products from that of somebody else? Is there some problem, some issue, some compromise that customers are making that you can solve better than others? Why? And how is that manifesting itself? There's too many, you know, for example, does the world really need 14 different online mattress companies? You know, how are they really distinguishing themselves? Mm -hmm. So you got to think about your unique positioning. And often it comes to customer experience. Uh, and what it is like to do business with you. Sometimes the product can certainly be differentiated. Sometimes it's the experience around the product. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review about five years ago called Competing on Customer Journeys. And I talk about a fantastic experience I had buying solar panels from a company called Sungevity. Solar panels are a commodity. They're you know, anyone can buy solar panels and put them on, but the experience of buying them and navigating all the special discounts, tax, selling your power back to the utilities, all, there's so much complexity around the product, making that simple, digital, seamless, easy to do business with totally won me over and made me a referrer and fan for the brand. And so that's, you know, from coming back to insurers and insur insurance brokers, you know, again, what's it going to be like doing business with you? That's got to be a key part of your marketing. It's got to come through and it's got to be something I'll want to experience. Mm -hmm. And technology is having an enormous impact on the customer journey, the customer experience. In that article, I thought that article was great, and it's an article that anyone who's listening to this can go check out for the Harvard Business Review. But you talk about the core capabilities of the customer experience. Can you briefly go through those core components? Yeah, so there's four things in today's world that you gotta think about. Um, first is automating that's, that which should be automated. Some things are just capabilities you should be able to do online um, that you couldn't before. I'll just, I'll use solar panels, what, what I'm talking about here. Um, but being able to review a lease, sign a lease, model different options for what that lease is going to cost you. 
you, you've got to be able to have those capabilities. The second is personalization, making that experience able to use as much information about the customer as the customer is comfortable with you using. And the more proactive that can be, the better. And so, for example, with Sungevity, you know, I get a solicitation that has a personal link to Google Maps, Google Earth, actually, where I click on the link and I see an overhead view of my house with solar panels proactively superimposed on it That's with so a cool. calculation on the side of how much energy it's likely to generate. And based on the square footage of my house, which they got from Zillow, what percent of my energy needs solar would cover? That's personalization. That's amazing. And that's really powerful. Um, and using that constantly through the experience, because the more information you can use that people are comfortable with, the easier the experience. Then the third is you got to be contextually relevant in the moment. So, for example, after seeing that Google Earth and seeing all that, I click to talk to a rep. And that rep has all the information about me right there. They know where I am in the buying process. They know what I've seen. They know the information that's been given to me. And so I don't have to go through that all over again. They can just take me to the next step. Think about that in an insurance process when you're signing up a customer. You know, everything should be constantly moving forward where all the information is there, ready, known, and able to be used. And then the fourth is innovation, trying new things, um, new capabilities that hadn't really been there before. Things like, you know, using Zillow to find out the square footage of a house, estimating how much electricity a house of that size would use so that you can know how much uh, the solar panels would offset energy costs. Uh, and different kinds of things. And eventually, Sungevity didn't just send solicitations. They actually had people with iPads in Home Depot or Lowe's where you could just talk to somebody and right there on their iPad, they could pull up the information about your home if you were interested in solar panels. Um, and so constantly innovating the journeys, testing and learning, coming back to the agile that I had before. So automation, personalization, contextual relevance, and innovation are the four things you gotta think about when designing customer experiences. My mind is just racing with uh, different ideas of how we could optimize our own customer experience with Evolve MGM. I'm sure a lot of people listening are thinking about different ways that they could, um, they could optimize their own uh, customer experiences. And I think that Sungevity example is awesome. I think it's so cool with how they've integrated technology. And again, I, I highly recommend people read your full article there because it goes through step-by-step -step of each automation, proactive, personal, proactive personalization, contextually relevant and innovation four components that everybody should be thinking about. Now, David, if I'm, if I'm building out a marketing department, based on those four components that we mentioned, are there specific roles that I'm looking to hire for? Because I know with something like automation, you know, we might need to be looking at hiring some sort of developer or someone with some sort of technological expertise. Is there a way I should begin thinking about the roles that are responsible for optimizing that customer journey? 
Yeah, and not all of it necessarily has to be housed within marketing. A lot of customer experience takes a village. There's a lot of different functional groups ranging from the customer service team, it could be sales, it could be IT. Um, there could be a separate chief digital officer team from the chief marketing officers team that work together, which is what we had. Um, so there's a lot of different places it can be, but there are certainly certain kinds of roles. One right out of the gate is somebody who understands design thinking and experience design, who can analyze what's going through in terms of the current aspects of a customer journey, step back and say, what do customers really need to do? Coming back to the classic article from Clay Christensen, what are the jobs to be done? Uh, and how can those jobs get done in a much more streamlined, efficient, data-driven way? So you need somebody who's got that kind. You may need to get that from an outside agency. Uh, if you're small and it's hard to find, you, you may need to, to get that kind of expertise. Even big companies um, hire agencies to get those kinds of expertise. You need data scientists who understand what you've got in terms of data, what it can do, what needs to happen to that data to make it more usable. And they're going to be very involved in setting up tests, setting up the actual way data is used in the operations, the backend measurement, all of that's going to be critical. There's going to be other forms of creative designers actually designing aspects of the content along the way. How do specific screens work? How do you explain certain things? How do certain forms work? Visualizations, all of that. Again, agencies can provide help on that, um, but you may want that internally. And then certainly, as you pointed out, you need development support. Um, people who you know, and probably need both an architect to design and understand from an IT perspective what systems need to be hooked together to make the data and the operations flow. And then you need people who can actually do the programming. Some of it's going to be systems integration, some of it's going to be, which is back-end programming, some of it's going to be front-end programming, the actual design of the experience flow that the consumer sees. Mm -hmm. um, so those will all be capabilities that you'll need. I think what helps me when I'm thinking about that process is coming up with the ideal customer experience. Like what, what, what would it be in a perfect world? And then trying to determine what roles would be needed to make it happen. Do you think that's a good way to think about it to start? Yeah. And there's two kinds of roles. Um, there's roles in building it. There's roles in operating it. Um, and of course, once you set it up, it's going to constantly evolve. So you do need capability to keep building and changing and doing, but you need to think about roles in terms of both um, okay. along the way. And then, you know, as you think about the ideal experience, it's important not to get caught up in the way your company is currently set up. Uh, but what would be the most seamless way to make something happen? Let me just give another good example as I left um, Aetna during the middle of COVID, but at the beginning when things were getting bad, 
we realized that our Medicare brokers were not going to go into people's homes to sit down across the table with them and sell Medicare with pieces of paper and showing them things. It was all going to be digital. Uh, and so they'd have to set up an appointment and do things from a video standpoint and show how things are going to look on the screen, show visualizations. Um, and it gave us an opportunity to step back and say, okay, what would a really ideal experience be? What are the key questions people would should be asked so that they know what's the right plan for them? What are the what data should they visualize to understand different cost trade-offs? Should there be things sent to them in advance? Should we send them a, a video in advance that explains basic things like deductibles? Um, co-pays, things like that, so that we don't have to explain them on the spot. A simple, well done, that can always be reused video that makes that easy. So you can just rethink the whole flow of that experience, which we did, um, and it made a big difference. Are there any significant trends that you see in the marketing world that you think the insurance industry should be aware of? No question AI is going to change a lot of the way you figure out who to target, how you price. Um, in fact, I have my next article for the Harvard Business Review that'll come out in February is about customer experience in the age of AI. Cool. Uh, and I definitely think we're going to see more smart capabilities managing data so that you get a lead and your ability to understand more about that lead, think about how to price it, think about the possibly the best way to follow up and contact somebody based on your experience. Uh, those are going to increasingly have AI engines behind them. The challenge though is AI is useless if you don't have data. And so it's going to force more parties and insurance companies especially and, and brokers who probably haven't spent as much time really building up their data to make sure they capture data. Um, a CRM system that really understands every point in the journey of what has happened, the whole lead flow, the whole buy flow for everyone, all of that has to be captured in terms of data so that you can understand what's the best way to move this kind of client to the next step and get a recommendation from the system how to do it. When you tried different scripts, how did they work? You gotta tag that stuff. Um, so thinking about your data as an asset that can drive that intelligence is gonna be a big step forward for a lot of agencies, I'm sure. But it's something most are gonna have to start paying attention to. I'm excited to check out that article. You said it comes out in February? Yes. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, David, I, I know we're running up on time here, and I, and I just want to say thank you so much for um, spending some time with me and going through your journey, your personal journey, your you know experience with Harvard, your experience with Aetna, and some specific ways that folks in the insurance industry can start thinking about their own marketing departments and optimizing and enhancing things with technology, all great topics. And I know I'm personally excited to kind of hit the ground running and, you know, take a second look at our marketing department, see what we can do better and see how we can integrate that with the rest of the firm. 
The way that we typically end our conversations on the podcast is with five rapid fire questions that are personal, professional. You can answer them as short or as long as you want. They're kind of fun. Oh boy. All right. <laughs> so if you're ready. All right. Fire away, Patrick. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> what company outside of Sungevity are you most impressed with from a marketing standpoint right now? Uh, that's a good question because uh, it changes each day depending <laughs> on, on which things I, I look at. Um, I think actually one company I'm very impressed with is called Sweetwater that sells music equipment who it's kind of an eBay for music equipment with a whole lot of extra enhancements that help understand who people are who are using their equipment. And it's very smart about recommending and connecting you and helping you understand what's possible with your with what you're doing in music. Cool, cool. I, I see our, Chris, our videographer, nodding his head with that one uh, <laughs> because uh, he's very involved with music as well. So that's a great shout. I'll have to check out that company. The next question falls in line with that music category. What is your favorite band? Uh, well, there, there are several, depending. Uh, but my, my tastes are mostly 70s, 80s, new wave, where I got really deep. I'm David Bowie. I did a whole David Bowie musical when I was in college. Wow. Um, uh, I love the new show by David Byrne. Talking Heads has always been a high on my list. But then I also love a recently passed um, African saxophonist, Manu Dibango, who was just absolutely incredible. Um, unfortunately passed away from COVID at the age of 80, but has made amazing music over the years. Question number three, you've been at Harvard three different times, undergrad business school as a professor. What is your favorite or most exciting experience looking back? If you had to choose one of the three, what did you like most? Oh, certainly college. Um, it was certainly college because it was so formative at the time of just exposing me to different kinds of ideas, different kinds of people, getting me out of Brooklyn. Um, it was huge um, in terms of impact. And, and I think just simply meeting all the people I met in college who had such crazy different backgrounds, different places, different ethnicities, everything. Just the diversity of that was just mind blowing to me. Cool. Okay, so I know you are a New Yorker living in Boston. If you had to choose your favorite city between the two, Boston or New York, which one would you choose? Well, Boston's a place to live. New York's a wonderful place to visit and have fun. <laughs> so great way to describe it. I think about New York really similarly. Yeah. It's just so much easier to navigate life in Boston, uh, to get out of the city if you need to get out of the city. Um, but I go to New York all the time for fun. Certainly have gone there like so many times on business. So mm -hmm. it's good for that, but it's a tough place to live. I'm due for a trip as well. And I'm actually, the last question is uh, somewhat selfish because I have, a trip coming up to Boston. Do you have a favorite restaurant in Boston? Oh my God. Um, a favorite restaurant. I don't know what's still open. <laughs> <laughs> I think just walking along Hanover Street in the North End, the Italian restaurants there, um, they are just amazing. And so many of them mm -hmm. are so good. 
um, it's just a wonderful place to go for just a great night out and certainly a great meal. I've had excellent experiences in the North End. I remember I was at an Italian place and it was like the whole family was working there. You could see, mm-hmm. you know, the parents and, you know, the kids were um, the waiters and the waitresses. And it was such an experience and such great food. Uh, I'm excited to get back there. Such a cool district. Yep. Very real. But David, thank you again. I really appreciate the insights. Um, and I know I'm excited to hear everyone's reaction and how they're going to think about the customer journey and, um, you know, how they can look to optimize everything they're doing from an entire company standpoint and how that is integrated with marketing. So um, with that said, any final messages for the audience of uh, insurance professionals that are out there? No, just it's been a a pleasure uh, to share thoughts with you. I think it is both a, a time of incredible opportunity to distinguish yourself and a time of change that's gonna happen whether you do or you don't. Uh, so this is you know, a moment to uh, take advantage of and seize. David Edelman, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 